John Piper says, I recall once being asked a trick question. If you had access to all the latest machinery in a sophisticated science lab, what would be the most effective way to get all the air out of a glass beaker? He says one ponders the possible ways to suck the air out of uh, out and create a vacuum. Eventually, the answer is given. Fill it with water. So if you had all the all the most effective, all these sophisticated machines in a lab to suck the air out of a glass beaker, right? So immediately you're just starting to think of all the sophisticated tools you could apply. And that diverts you from the simple solution, which is not to suck the air out, but to push it out by filling it with something else, something more solid with water. Now, John wrote this book of Revelation, as we've, as we've talked about, at the end of the first century. And he wrote it to A.D., at the end of the first century A.D., uh, about 60 years or so after two generations, two or three generations after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He is an old man. He's the only living apostle at this point. And he wrote it to a beleaguered and battered church to give the church hope that they were on the winning side and that they were more than conquerors through Christ who loved and that he was reigning and that he was... It's a, it's a behind-the-scenes look. It's a revealing of what's actually happening, not what they see, not what they feel, not what they're being told by the world, not not what they perceive, not what seems, but what actually is, right? And so, you know, many people are afraid of this book. So the question is, like, how did John give this great hope uh, to this first century battered, persecuted church? Um a bit of a sidestep, you know, a lot of us would think, kind of think the opposite about Revelation, right? We're, we're afraid of it. One pastor that I told I was preaching um, through this book this year to said, man, I hate that book. And that's a pastor speaking about the word of God. Um, a lot of us sort of are afraid of it. There are dragons, beasts. We think of rapture, antichrist, tribulation, but it's not about any of those things. It includes those things, but what is what it's about is plain from the first three words of the book. Apocalypsis Yesu Christu. A revealing of or from, and, and we've talked about how it's both, Jesus Christ. It's it's a revelation about what's really going on from Jesus, and the main subject is Jesus. The risen Christ. Not the Christ crucified. Not the Christ of our imagination. Not the Christ that the world thinks about or imagines maybe isn't, but the real Christ, the risen Christ, the Christ of power, the, vic the victorious conquering king who gave his life for us. So this, he fills out this book in a way that he doesn't fill out any other book in the Bible, which is why this book is a perfect close to the scriptures, because Jesus fills the field of view. Um, he, and so in giving this book to John and, um, and to his church, his bride-to-be, he gave it to her to console her and to steal her for the fight, assuring her that he had won and was reigning and would soon return to make all things new.
by giving them a vision of him as the king of kings and the lord of lords. Um, so it did. It steeled the early church. And we know that because of how she conquered through persecution and through death. Now, again, um, John does this by giving us a picture, a vision of Christ, the revelation of and from Jesus Christ. And he fills out the latter half of this first chapter of Revelation. That's what our text is today. Revelation 1, 9 through 20. Um, the vision that, that, G, that John has of Jesus and indeed the encounter that he has with the risen Christ is, is a seven. It gives us seven aspects. It tells us about seven aspects of Jesus Christ as John sees him, uh, which, again, it's this book is full of symbols and, and numbers are some of those symbols. So the number seven is a number for fullness. It's the number that uh, that God made all things in six days plus one of rest, which completes the six days. So seven days total. It's the divine number. It's a number of fullness and totality. And so in giving us seven aspects, he's giving us the complete Christ. He's saying this is Jesus as he truly and really is. But we're just going to look at a few. We're just going to touch on a few of those um, in this message here. And the first thing I want to talk about briefly is just the eyes of fire. John says that Jesus had eyes like flames of fire. He, he first hears Jesus, and his voice is like a trumpet, and he says, what you see, write down, and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is, which is modern-day Turkey. And then he turns to see the voice that's like this waterfall, like a rushing water, this powerful voice like a trumpet, and he sees Jesus. And... One of the aspects of Jesus that he sees is that he has eyes like a flame of fire. And again, it, these are symbols. Jesus' eyes are not, not actually on fire. What is John trying to tell us through this symbol? It, you know, when you see someone that is dead inside, their eyes are dull. The eyes are the window to the soul. When they... When you have someone that has a piercing gaze and they can see through you and their eyes seem alive, it shows you that they're alive on the inside. Jesus is that to perfection, to the nth degree. And sometimes somebody's eyes are so piercing that you kind of hide from them. That's the case with Jesus. He can see all the way. His eyes of fire mean that he's pure all the way down. He's refined all the way down. And he can see into your soul, not to what you project to the world, not to what you may think you are, but to what you really are. And that is terrifying. It is terrifying. It's reassuring in one sense, but really it's, it's quite terrifying because I know, I know who I am on the inside and what I've done and what's down there and the sins that I hide from others and even from myself. And they're exposed to Jesus. We're told that in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, that his word pierces, it divides, it exposes, it opens up, and that nothing is hidden from his sight, right? So that, that, those verses in Hebrews move from his word exposes, and it's active, and it's living, and it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart to the pronoun he. Without a transition, it just moves from the word, it, to he, because he is, he is the one acting when it, through his word because he is the word. And by his spirit, 
his word pierces us. And so this Jesus, he has eyes of fire and he sees what is. He sees past appearances. Also, secondly, so we see that he has eyes of fire. Secondly, we see that he has a sword coming out of his mouth. That is even more terrifying. And I think a lot of people that just don't understand how to read this book think, well, Jesus, it's weird, but he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. Maybe that just makes people more afraid of him if they're not on his side. No. Again, it's symbolic. What is John trying to say? That Jesus is the word. Again, it's a similar, it's a similar message sort of told with a different, with a different, uh, with a different image. And that is that his word cuts and that his word is power and that his word wages war. It destroys evil. It destroys opposition. It cuts, you know, it either, it either, it hurts either way. It's going to hurt to heal. It's going to cut us open like a surgeon and remove the cancer, or it's going to cut us and kill us if we're opposed to him, right? If we don't yield to his, to his word and to his presence and to what he offers, which is himself and his life and his death for us, then uh, he will destroy us. And and he will vanquish, we're told later in Revelation, he'll vanquish his enemies with the simply with a word. And that's how he creates too, right? I mean, John is telling us a lot of things. And one of the things he's telling us is this this son of man, this this risen Christ that John sees, that John is be- was best friends with while on this earth, is... God, he's the one creator God, the, in, the almighty who's uncreated. He's the self-existent and the necessary one. And with the word of his mouth, he made all things. And he is that God whose word is power. You want to be on his side. I promise you, you want to be on his side. Even those who pierced him are going to see him and going to bow and they're going to wail if they haven't repented. So this is a terrifying Jesus with eyes of as a fire and a sword coming out of his mouth. And we're also told by John that this is the son of man. Okay, so we know he's a man and we know he's Jesus because Jesus for lots of reasons, but partly because that this is Jesus favorite title for himself. It comes out of the Old Testament as does everything that Jesus Jesus fulfills God's word in the Old Testament. Right. He is the fulfillment of that. And no book shows us that better than Revelation. And so one of the things that John is doing, he's he's giving Jesus his favorite name that he no doubt heard Jesus speak hundreds of times about himself. Uh, Jesus would often refer to himself as the son of man. And one of the things Jesus is doing, he's identifying with men, saying, I'm 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 a human. He wasn't actually a son of man. He was a son of a woman, but uh, he did not have an earthly father. God is his father. Always has been. So it's a way of saying I'm a man. So this is the, the son of man. And John's also saying he's not he's not just a man. He's not just he is Jesus. He's not just Jesus. He's that that when Jesus used it and when John uses it here, it takes us back to it's rooted in the text in Daniel, the prophet, Daniel seven. And in Daniel seven, uh, it's it's one of the preeminent places where we see this son of man. It's a it's a vision that Daniel has of of the ancient of days, the uncreated creator, 
he has white here, which stands for wisdom. And he knows all omniscience. He knows all things. And he's uncreated. And he sits on a throne. And he is the one God. And he rules over all. And there is this one like a son of man that approaches the throne, approaches the Ancient of Days even. He isn't destroyed. He walks right up. And he is given by the Ancient of Days what is the exclusive domain of the Ancient of Days, but also what was given by God to man, to Adam, dominion, and rule over God's creation. That was that vice regency was given to Adam, but Adam lost it through his rebellion. And so the Son of Man regains through his obedience what what the first Son of Man, Adam, lost. But also he gets he he takes the throne uh, of the with the Ancient of Days, and he receives what is God's alone, all all praise and power and dominion. And so he's a man, and he is he is divine. He's this this God Man figure in Daniel seven, and and so John says that. He, what he does here is something interesting. He does this a lot in the book of Revelation. He takes an Old Testament truth and image, and he expands it and does something new with it through the lens of Jesus. He says, now Jesus helps us blow the, blow the walls out of this. And so what John does here, and understand it in a new way, what John does here is he says, I saw one like a son of man. Um, his hair was white like white wool like snow. Now, what is John doing here? At first, you might just say, okay, he's saying that Jesus has all wisdom, and that's true. And he's omniscient, and that's true. But he's also, again, going in going back to Daniel 7, what he's doing here is he's combining the one who approaches the Ancient of Days with the Ancient of Days in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, Jesus is the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, the mediator who restores what Adam lost for humanity. And he is also, and he's the one who conquered and who has a kingdom whose dominion is now overall creation and spreading. But he's also the Ancient of Days himself. He's also fully God. He is the one God. He approaches God. He's sent by God. He regains dominion for man, and he is God. He is the Ancient of Days. And so, um, Jesus is the one God of Israel and of the nations. And he's this, he's, he's got eyes as a fire, a sword out of his mouth, white hair like wool, and he's just this glorious, majestic, beautiful, terrifying figure. And John, remember, what's his reaction? I mean, he, this is Jesus' best friend. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't say, I've missed you so much, and run up and hug, hug Jesus. On the contrary, when he sees Jesus, the risen Christ, not the crucified Christ, not the, not the Christ of weakness that, was, that came in weakness to be crucifiable, but, but the Jesus who is risen, the Jesus who is reigning, the Jesus who now is. And when he sees this Jesus, he says, when I saw him, I fell like a dead man. And what, and that's what, what people always do when they see, when they see God. And so <laughs> we just realize in that moment how much Jesus truly veiled his glory while on earth. 
all the way to the cross. So much so that he made himself crucifiable to save us. And, and what Jesus does is, is, is shocking. His response is shocking. He doesn't say, that's right, John, stay down. Or he doesn't zap John. Or his presence doesn't destroy John. On the contrary, what he does is he takes his right hand, which is the hand of power. It's the hand of power. When, you know, when God uses his right hand, watch out. Because it's, it's the strength hand. And so he takes his right hand of power and he puts it on John's shoulder. He touches John in this tender act. And he says, fear not. Fear not. Why not fear Jesus? Give me a good reason, Jesus. I am terrified. And the reason that he gives is he says, fear not, because I am the living one. And behold, I died and I am alive forevermore. Let me go ahead and read it. I'm just quoting it from memory. So he tells John, a terrified John, who has seen the risen Christ, to fear not. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. Look at this. I died, past tense, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I had the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus says, Fear not, and here's why. Because I am the living one. I am life itself. I am the thing from which all life comes. I am the I am. I am the eternally present one. I am the ancient of days. And I died. What? That's right. He didn't just die in our place. He defeated death. He took, he wrestled with death and killed it by being killed himself to take John Owens the title of his sermon and work the death of death and the death of Christ Jesus took death down in his own death as the living one he buried it and then he rose he says I'm alive forevermore he rose victorious over death and death is simply a result of sin right death is an alien to God's creation death exists because of our rebellion and sin and so in defeating death what it means, too, is that he defeated sin. He paid for sin, thereby defeating death, and death could no longer hold him. And so he says, I am alive forevermore. I'm not dead anymore, John. I'm risen. And, you know, let's just pause there. One of the things that I have left out that John first sees when he turns around, he hears the voice of Christ and he turns around. And the first thing that he sees of Jesus is this. It says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He sees one walking among the lampstands. And that is a picture of the lampstands were in the temple, the tabernacle first and then the temple. And what he sees is it's a priestly figure walking in the temple. And he has a he has a long robe on, which is a priestly garment. And he has a golden sash around his chest, which is probably a reference to the um, the vestments, the um, the things that the priests that the high priest wore on his chest. This comes out of um, Exodus 28. 
So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece. That's the word I was looking for of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So there's a sense in which the high priest through what he wears across his chest is bearing as close to his heart as possible. He's bearing the people, the sinful people of Israel on his heart. And what Jesus does is he shows that with a golden sash, gold purified as if through fire, gold pure, gold precious and beautiful. And so he has made us a sinful people, pure, perfect, beautiful, and precious. And we are as close to his heart as we can possibly be because he loves us and he's given his life for us. Um, so he has this golden sash around his chest and this robe, and he's walking him on the lampstands. And that's the first thing. This is front-loaded into the image of the risen Christ. And Jesus wants it that way. He, he's the one who, who gives this vision in these words to John to give to the church. And what, we, what, what he's saying is, what I want you to know about me first and foremost is that I'm a priest, that I'm the priest, that I'm the high priest. Um, I think of 1 Peter 2.24 that says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Um, the priest is the one who brings a sinful people to God, to a holy God. And he does that through the sacrifice of the innocent. And what Jesus does is he brings us as a sinful people to his perfect and holy father by offering the sacrifice of himself without blemish. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you've been healed. Jesus brings us all the way to God, to God's very heart in his purity and in his power by becoming sin for us in our place by bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And that is the first thing that Jesus wants to know about us, and that is about himself, rather, and that is why he can say to John, fear not. It's also the last thing that Jesus says in this picture that he gives of himself to John and through John to the church, and that is that he's walking among the lampstands. It's the first thing that's mentioned. When John sees Jesus, he's walking among the lampstands like a son of man. And it's the last thing. It's in verse 12, and then it's in, again in verse 20. The lampstands are mentioned again. Because it's Jesus' priesthood that covers us from front to back. It's comprehensive. He goes before us, and he is our rear guard. He surrounds us. And also, he walks among the churches. He's, the churches are the lampstands, right? He is with us. He's not just in heaven. By his spirit, he is with us. He's among us, like he told his disciples um, in Matthew 28, before his ascension. He said, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you, friend, to know that regardless of what is going on around you, you have an invincible reason to not fear. And Jesus says, that is because I, I hold the keys of death and hell. Now, what is he saying there? In short, what he's saying is that when you think about ancient fortresses, ancient fortresses were only as strong 
as the weakest part of that fortress. If they had a weak place, that's where people would enter. If it was a great, like in uh, Lord of the Rings, at Helm's Deep, there's a great in this sheer massive rock wall that the uh, the orcs and the Urukai exploit and explode, and they get in, they blow up the wall through that grate, that little hole. Uh, it could be a back door. It could be um, a, f- a front door, you know, that's got a moat in front of it. That That's the, where the battering ram goes. And once that front door is battered in, then everybody, all the armies, the offensive armies flood in, and it's over, right? Um, that's how Troy was taken by the Greeks, the Trojan horse. They, they simply entered in. That was the weak point. Um, Satan exploits weaknesses. He gets a foothold through our sin, and in he goes, right? Um, so a fortress is only as, as strong as its weakest point. And what Jesus is saying here, among other things, uh, in, in short, he's saying, I have the authority over death and hell, and I have it through what we just talked about. I have it because I, um, I, I am the living one and I died. But he's also saying through this image that the fortress, death and death and hell are a fortress. I mean, previous to Christ coming, they were something. When you died, you uh, if Christ had never come, our destination would simply be into the fortress of death and hell forever. We, there was there is no escape. They are impenetrable, and they are certainly unescapable. But Jesus has the keys to the front door, and he opens the gate of death and hell, but these fortresses that have held men and that would threaten to continue to hold men through sin and women through sin. And, um, so death and hell hold us. But Jesus says, no, I've exploded them from the inside out. I now have the keys. I'm the key master. I, there's an open death is a fortress and hell is a fortress now that has an open, a wide open door. If you're in me, I've got the keys and I can just walk you straight out. So he's literally taken the stinger out of death. Um, the rest of the revelation of, of this book, it, what Christ reveals to John comes out of the end of this passage here. It, it comes from from this risen Christ who literally is the living one and died. And who is alive forevermore, who rose and beat death and hell and sin. Um, and we know that because Jesus at the end of this passage, last verse in Revelation 1.20, he says, right, because of everything we just read, I died, I'm alive forevermore. I am the priest who died in your place and takes you to God. Uh, I have the keys of death and hell. Right on the heels of that next verse, right, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. And that is the, that is the order that is essentially the, the structure of the book of Revelation. It consists of what John has already seen, the things that are presently in John's life and in the church and in the ancient world into the first century with to do with Rome and the persecuted church and what God's doing and what Satan's doing and those that are to take place after this. So past, present, and future, John, write about those things. But what Jesus says at the beginning is he says, write therefore these things. In other words, this whole book can proceed which takes us all the way to the end of history, to the second coming and the new creation, uh, it can proceed because of what I've done, 
because of my victory at the cross, which is shown through the resurrection. Because I have the keys of death and hell, right? Therefore, because I've done that, therefore, these things can proceed. Revelation 5, 5 is like it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And from those seven seals come the seven trumpets. And from the seven trumpets come the bowls that are poured out and then the end. So same thing is being said there. Because Jesus conquered at the cross, history can proceed. The, the scroll can be opened, which is God's plan for the rest of history. The seals uh, can be, this, the scroll that, that has the seven seals can be opened. And then from that, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls and then the end. Um, because he is conquered, all these things can move forward and then the end will come. And um, to, to take from C.S. Lewis, all of that stuff is only the first things. And that's what um, that's what Revelation 21, I believe it's verse four says. Jesus calls all of human history when he returns. He says, oh, that's just the first things. They're over. Now, now the rest can proceed. In other words, again, to take to take from Lewis in the last battle, which is a lap, the seventh of the Narniad, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, all of human history preceding the second coming of Christ will be like the cover and title page of a book. The real story will then start where every page is better than the one before. So as I close, just a, a bit of a story about a man named um, Thomas Chalmers, sort of focusing back in on what I started with, which is that trick question about with all the, with all the machinery, scientific machinery, at your disposal, how do you remove the air from a beaker? And of course, the answer is you fill it with water. So the best way uh, to get the air out is to, is to fill it with something more solid. And John Piper writes that Christian hedonism asserts that the most effective way to kill our own sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. No one sins out of duty, he says. We sin because it is more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling, a more compelling joy. 200 years ago, a man named Thomas Chalmers, uh, a Scottish man who lived from 1780 to 1847, uh, he preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I think that may be the best sermon title ever. Um, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And his his thesis was. Just what it sounds like, which is that the thing that drives out our fears and man, our, if our society has ever been full of fear, it's it's now. It's full of fear. The world is full of fearful things. There are fearful things inside of me. I'm I'm surrounded by fear, without and within. I'm surrounded by it. And I'm filled by it. what is going to drive out these fears. It's a greater fear. And what is going to Drive out these idolatrous loves, these lesser loves that I have. It's a greater love. The expulse, it's a greater affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. Um, and what John is doing here is that he is giving us, and what Jesus is doing through John to the church, to us, is that he is giving us a picture during, during a time when the church had a lot of things to fear. He is giving them the one thing that will not only drive out their fears, but 
but drive out their lesser loves with a greater love, with a greater affection. And that is a vision of the risen Jesus Christ and a picture of the fact that his cross was the victory of the world's. He killed death and sin. He has the keys to death and hell. He, he loves us and has freed us by his blood. And this is the picture that fills the pages of the book of Revelation. This is the reality. And this is what will allow us to live victoriously as Christians. Lives free of fear, free of lesser fear. Lives compelled by love. Um, Not driven about by lesser loves, but filled and compelled by and propelled by the great love of Jesus Christ with which he's loved us and laid his life down for us and taken it up again. So I hope this encourages you. Um, We will continue to trace this throughout the book as we preach through it and teach through it. This is the focus of the book. Remember, it is a revelation of not the tribulation, not the Antichrist, not the rapture, but of Jesus Christ. And it's from Jesus Christ. And it's to fill us with not dread, but hope. Again, Revelation 1 verse 3, John says twice, blessed are they who read this book and obey it. Because... In it we see, and I pray, encounter, as John did, the living Christ, who died, and behold, is alive forevermore.